Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. Halloween is only a few days away, so what better way to get into the spooky spirit than listening to some of your favorite stories? Let's get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. My town's emergency alert system just went off. We must stay inside no matter what. Written by Boris Basic I was about to go home, but after everything that had happened, I guess staying later at work is what saved my life that day. It was 3pm on a Friday and I was about to submit the final report for the week. Any plans for the weekend, Blake? My coworker Joe asked as he leaned at my desk. I'm just gonna sleep until I can't sleep anymore, I replied. Well, we're almost out of the woods and just one more week until the deadline, he said. Yeah, well, if the client isn't satisfied, then we wasted a lot of time. And he does look like the type that's never satisfied. Bye, guys, Dustin said in passing as he headed for the exit. And we waved him off silently. You see that guy? Joe crossed his arms. 3 p.m. and boom, he's out of the office not one minute later. There is a female voice shouting from the back of the room. Hey Joe, did you send me that thing I asked? I'll send it to you on Monday, Joe shouted back. He turned back to me and rolled his eyes saying a quiet. And then there's Jessica never leaving the office. I silently nodded, tapping the entry key on my keyboard and shutting down the computer. You gonna head home soon? I asked as I packed my things. Yeah, and a few. I gotta finish one thing. Well, you take it easy now, Joe. You know that the company doesn't encourage staying late on a Friday. I winked at him as I stood up. Joe was about to say something, but he was rudely interrupted. A noise blared so loudly that I thought my eardrums would pop out. Sirens. Although I could tell their source was really far away, it was still agonizingly loud. My coworkers put their hands over their ears, shouting something, but I couldn't hear them over the sound of the sirens. The wailing dropped and then completely ceased, but only for a moment. What the? Was all that Joe had managed to mutter, before the sirens had started blaring once more, rising in tone and remaining constant for another ten seconds or so before stopping once more. I myself had been holding my hands over my ears, bracing myself for another blare, but luckily it never came. What was that? Christian, our manager asked, emerging from his office. An enemy attack? Maybe somebody decided to go for a preemptive strike, Lorraine said, as the remaining six of us who were still in the office gathered around. What a nah, Christian said, as he turned his gaze to the window. The rest of us jerked our heads in the same direction and my jaw dropped to the floor. The street outside, which was clearly visible on a normal day, was completely obscured by a yellow-looking fog. We rushed to the window, squinting to try and see something. I couldn't make anything out further than a few feet away, the entirety of the view providing nothing but yellow. Is that smog? Joe asked, 
leaning forward to the point of almost pressing his face against the glass. We stared in silence for a moment before another sound which I likened to an engine whirring appeared. At first I couldn't tell what it was but as it got louder, it became apparent that the whirring was actually coming from a helicopter and it was somewhere above the building even though we couldn't see it. Please go inside the closest building that you can find and stay there until further notice. A voice that sounded like it was coming through a megaphone blasted along with the helicopter's whirring. Repeat, do not try to go outside under any circumstances. Stay inside and lock your doors. The position of the voice seemed to change slightly, making it difficult to pinpoint where exactly it was coming from. I placed my ear against the pane of glass, wincing at how cold it was. Repeat, stay inside and... Oh God, watch out! The helicopter's engine roared above her head so loudly that I thought for a moment that it would crash on top of us. It then faded to a distance before there was a crash so loud that the entire building shook momentarily. Holy crap, Joe said, stepping away from the window. The entire office was eerily silent all of a sudden. No worrying of helicopters, not even my coworkers' voices. I heard my own heart beating against my chest. What the heck just happened? Did the helicopter crash? I asked, more to kill the silence than to get an answer. My coworker Milo strode to his desk, snatched the jacket off his chair and hastily put it on. What are you doing, Milo? Christian asked him, as the rest of us shot him judgmental glances. My family is out there, I have to go get them, he said and started towards the exit. Whoa, whoa, slow down there, cowboy. Joe stopped in front of him, holding his hands out in a stop sign. Didn't you hear what they just said? We can't go outside now. Get out of my way. Milo pushed him aside and went down the lobby. The rest of us shouted after him, trying to convince him to stay, but he ignored us. He forcefully pushed the glass entrance door open and stepped outside. A gust of cold air immediately entered the room along with yellow wisps of fog which twirled around and disappeared shortly after. Milo disappeared in the wall of yellow within a second of stepping outside, and the rest of us instantly went quiet. We held our breaths in anticipation, staring at the door in silence. After about a minute, we started to assume that Milo either safely made it to his car and was about to start it, or he had quietly choked to death on the way there. What happened to Milo, though, was much worse than what any of us had assumed. Joe took the initiative to approach the door and lock it, holding his shirt over his mouth along the way. There was a loud scream just outside the building which nearly made me jump out of my skin. I heard my coworkers gasp and I took a step back, before a figure rushed into the door with a loud bang, making it shake unsteadily. Joe, who was right in front of the door, screamed and recoiled in surprise. It was Milo, his face and hands pressed against the glass, and the look on his expression contorted in fear, as if he had just seen a ghost. Open the door, he said in a quick breath. I took a step forward for better observation, and it was only then that I realized how wrong Milo was. His skin was completely covered in blisters, huge and pulsating that looked like they would explode on the slightest touch. 
His clothes had tiny holes in it as if they were eaten away by moss. I was so taken aback by this that I froze immediately. Hurry, there's something out here. Milo repeated, banging on the door with his fist and looking over his shoulder. I wanted to do it to rush to the door and to let him in, but I knew that it would be a bad idea. I couldn't risk letting that fog inside and putting the rest of us in danger. Blake, please! His pleading eyes locked with mine. Joe, what are you doing? Open the door! Lorraine shouted from behind. No, we can't let that fog in, Joe rebutted. I looked at the rest of my co-workers, most of who were as frozen as I was, seemingly afraid that the door might break any moment under Milo's weight. And then I heard it. A blood-curdling, high-pitched screech that came from the street, sounding like no animal that I had ever heard before. It made shivers run down my spine and it must have been mutual, because Milo looked over his shoulder once more and said, now in a more panicked tone, Oh God, it's here. Oh God. He looked directly back at us once more, his eyes desperately darting from one coworker to another as he banged on the door, begging for us to let him in. And then something pulled him back onto the street, making him disappear in the yellow fog as he screamed bloody murder. The next few seconds were a cacophony of screams, combined with something that grotesquely reminded me of meat cutting. Milo's voice gradually got quieter, stopping after what seemed like an eternity, and we were once again left in utter silence, holding our breaths nervously. And then another bang resounded on the door, making our female coworker scream this time. God! Joe turned around and ran back a few steps, before facing the door once more. The pane of glass, now at a bloodstain on it and under it, was a severed human forearm. No, not severed. The stump looked like the arm had been ripped right off. The fingers froze it in stiff contraction. Get back! Get back! My fight-or-flight instincts had kicked in and I turned around, shouting at the co-workers. Needless to say, they didn't want to stick around for the show, so we ran back into the office and locked the door, barring it as quickly as we could with desks and chairs. What was that? Joe asked. Did you guys see that? Lorraine and Jessica were crying, desperately trying to call someone on their phones. But after some time, we came to the conclusion that there was no service. All right, everybody calm down, Joe said, running his fingers through his hair, visibly as stressed as the rest of us. Help will surely be here soon. All we gotta do is wait. We reluctantly agreed figuring that the second option was to go outside and leave, which was a no-go. I approached the window once more and as I stared outside at the impenetrable fog, I could only think of one thing. This was no fog. What the heck is the fog outside? I asked, peering through the window. Whatever it is, we can't let it in, Christian said. We need to check if all the windows are closed. Let's split up. We decided to check all the floors in order to secure the place. Lorraine and Christian went to the second floor, Joe and Jessica to the third one, and I had to go to the last floor alone. I went up there using the stairs in case another chopper decided to crash and sever the elevator wires. 
Knowing my rotten luck, that's exactly what would happen. Alright, I'll see you guys in a few. I told Joe and Jessica as we split up and I climbed the final flight of stairs. Each of the floors belonged to a separate company and the fourth floor was used by the IT company. We were all on collective vacation though, so the floor was desolate, leaving the rows of desks and computers unattended. The windows were on the far end of the office, but luckily most of them could not be opened. I immediately noticed that the windows here didn't have solely a yellow view through them, but a combination of yellow and gray. Moreover, the tops of some of the other buildings were visible from here. I strode between the desks and peered through the window. Although the yellow fog was very thick, it seemed to be gathered on the lower levels, shrouding the entire town in an impenetrable layer, which seemed to significantly reduce and stop it around the second floor. I could actually see the tops of all of the taller buildings, as the layer of fog seemed leveled equally everywhere. Moreover, although the fog covered much of the city, there was one huge area around a building nearby where it wasn't present, looking as if the building itself had an invisible shield around it, preventing the fog from getting close. I squinted and, according to my rough estimation, the building which was fog-free was the big warehouse which belonged to Happy Hour, our biggest supermarket. I noticed that one of the windows to my left was left open, so I quickly approached it to shut it. There was a sudden crash somewhere behind me. I shot around and saw the water tank overturned, rapidly spilling water on the floor. Hello? I foolishly asked immediately scolding myself for acting like a stereotypical horror movie dummy. I craned my neck to peek above and around the desks, but nothing was there. At least that's what I thought at first. I took a step to the right and looked at the furthest desk away. Was that jacket on the chair there before? I slowly made my way towards it, carefully watching my surroundings. I felt the hairs on the back of my neck stand straight, at the utter realization that that was no jacket. It was a person hiding behind a chair. As if on cue, the person or thing, whatever was behind that chair, hastily moved around and behind the desk. Without thinking, I rushed there, only to catch a glimpse of an emaciated, hunched-over creature running around the corner once more before I could catch any details. I followed around the desk again, but the creature was already at the far end, disappearing behind the corner. I ran after it, my adrenaline getting the better of me, and again I saw the creature disappear around the next corner. I stopped and took steady breaths, bracing myself with my left hand against the desk. I heard something that sounded like scratching under the desk on the other side, where the creature had disappeared and I just had to see what it was. Stealthily, I tiptoed around the table, the sound of scratching intensifying as I got closer. I bent down to peek under the table and the scratching instantly stopped. There was no one there. Pull yourself together, Blake, I said to myself. I sighed in relief, realizing that the shock was starting to get to me. I straightened up and turned around and then stopped dead in my tracks. I was standing face to face with a person 
except it looked like a walking corpse and not a person. It had empty black eye sockets, brown and shriveled skin tightly stretched across the entire face and body, prominently displaying blackened teeth, ribs, cheekbones, and other visible protrusions. A few strands of gray-wet hair fell flatly over its forehead, and although it had no eyes, I felt its penetrating gaze upon me. I was frozen in place, my body screaming at me to run, but I just couldn't will myself to move an inch. The creature unclenched its jaw and a gasp escaped its mouth, which gradually increased in tone and turned into a loud scream. I broke out of my trance and turned around, bolting out of there. I slipped on the puddle of water from the water tank on the way, but luckily managed to regain my composure and scramble out. I gave the room one final glance over my shoulder, unable to see the creature anymore before rounding the corner. I flew down the stairs, almost tripping and breaking my neck along the way. I didn't even see Joe until I bumped into him on the third floor. Whoa there, partner. Why the rush? He said. There's something up there. We gotta get down now, I said, glancing over my shoulder. Jessica and Joe were understandably confused, but also visibly terrified. We rushed downstairs, finding Christian and Lorraine already there, sitting by a desk. Is everything okay? Christian asked. No, everything is not okay, I shouted. There's some creature up on the fourth floor. What? Everyone stared at me like I was a madman, demanding an explanation. I told them everything that had happened up there, and while most of my co-workers agreed that I was only imagining things, Lorraine supported me, saying that she too had seen something briefly up on the second floor, but wasn't sure if it was only her imagination. Alright, so what the heck is going on here? Christian asked, frustratedly. It must be the fog, Joe said. Maybe it's making us see things. No, that can't be it, I said. Somebody had overturned the water tank, and that wasn't my imagination. Everyone was silent for a while. I finally spoke up after remembering what I had seen up there. Guys, listen, the fog is only gathered on the lower levels of the city. I saw it from up there, and not only that, but the happy hour warehouse seems to have no fog around it at all. What? What do you mean no fog around it? Lorraine asked. I know it sounds crazy, but I double-checked. It's as if there's an invisible wall around the building, which stops the fog from reaching it. I think if we could get there, we would be safe. It's true, Jessica said. Joe and I saw it too. Well, we can't get there with the fog, Christian said. Or maybe we can, Jessica said. We all looked at her, and she continued. The building next to ours has an underground parking lot and the subway is close by. It's a long shot, but if we could get there with a the car, we may be able to use the subway to get to the warehouse. We would need to jump from our building to the adjacent one, Christian said, and we don't even know if the subways have the fog in them. Well, it's better than waiting here for rescue, which may not even arrive for days, Jessica said. Christian contemplated for a while before saying, no, it's too risky. We should wait for rescue. We have enough food and water to last us for at least a few days. I agree, Joe said. 
The girls and I disagreed with them, but ultimately decided that splitting up would not be such a good idea. It was around 11pm and most of us were sitting in the office. Joe had gone to the bathroom and the rest of us were talking to take our minds off of things. Some of us tried getting in contact with the outside world with our phones and internet, but nothing seemed to be working. We tried to be as quiet as possible trying to detect any noise coming from the upper floors, but so far everything seemed uneventful. Hey Blake, Christian said, Joe's been gone for a while, you mind checking up on him? Sure, I said, suddenly realizing that Joe had indeed been gone for at least 15 minutes. I went to the bathroom and almost as soon as I had entered it, I could hear Joe retching in one of the stalls. Hey Joe, you okay buddy? I asked as I had approached the stall. He responded with another retch, the sound of his vomit splashing the toilet water. Suddenly a horrible realization had hit me. I knocked on the door and said, Joe, did you inhale any of that fog? He suddenly went quiet. I pushed the door open and beheld the mess in front of me. Joe was hugging the toilet seat which was completely covered in blood, with a few drops making their way to the floor tiles. He turned around and faced me, the corners of his mouth covered in blood. Help me, he reached out to me. I screamed and stepped back as he crawled towards me, vomiting streams of blood along the way. The light in the bathroom had started to flicker at that point and I only saw Joe for a second at a time. But every time that the lights would go out and come back, he was different. First, he had something protruding out of his neck. And then his neck had grown long and stretched, revealing veins that looked like they were barely able to hold together on his neck. And then the irises of his eyes disappeared and only the whites remained. And then horrible pointy bones protruded from his spine. And every second, he got closer and closer. I screamed and ran out, slamming the door shut behind me. The others obviously noticed that something was wrong, so they immediately stood up, alert. It's Joe, I said. He's... But before I managed to finish that sentence, Joe banged loudly on the bathroom door, cutting me off. The sound of one of the windows in the office, shattering, resounded behind us. I jerked my head in the direction of the sound and saw an elongated, emaciated hand with bony fingers reaching out through the window and inside the office. What the heck is that? We gotta go, I shouted as another hand wiggled in through the window. The bathroom door burst open and there stood Joe, a deformation of his former self, with a veiny elongated neck, his head twitching as trickles of blood ran down his mouth. His body transformed into something that very much resembled that creature upstairs. Move. Christian shoved me and we ran upstairs and into the elevator not caring any more about subsequent chopper crashes and malfunctions. I frantically slammed the button for the fourth floor and the doors closed away before Joe had managed to reach us. The elevator started ascending, the sounds of inhuman screams, loud banging and heavy scraping permeating the building. I was afraid the elevator would start dropping all of a sudden or worse, that it would open and we would be faced with one of those abominations. The door dinged and opened. Hurry! Christian shouted as he ran out of the elevator. 
I looked over in the direction of the IT department and saw the creature from before, just standing in the middle of the office, looking at us curiously with its head tilted. We ran upstairs and outside to the rooftop. I took a nearby pipe and jammed it between the door handle and wall, cautiously stepping back. Everything was suddenly quiet again. I just then became aware of how cold it was outside, but the thought of going back inside with those things froze my blood more than the winter air. Alright, we have no choice now. We have to get to that parking lot, Christian said. We approached the edge of the building observing the town. The warehouse was a lot clearer from here and despite most of the city being shrouded in darkness and fog, the warehouse stood as a beacon of hope, completely clear, its lights illuminating it as a holy sanctuary. Look, the nearby subway entrance just outside the warehouse is also clear, Jessica pointed. Yeah, whatever's going on there, we need to reach it. We might be safe there until this fog clears out. Plus, the place must be stocked with canned goods and drinks, I said. We went to the side, which was right next to the building that we were after. The roof of the other building looked close enough to be jumped across, but looking down into the ominous fog under, the distance suddenly felt a lot more threatening. Well, we'll have to make the jump, I said. I decided to go first before anybody had managed to oppose the idea. I stood as close to the edge as I could, trying to remember my long-distance jumping from college. I used all of my strength and jumped, easily making it to the other side by at least three feet. I exhaled, sweating bullets despite the cold. Come on, I said to my coworkers. Lorraine was next, then Jessica and finally Christian. Once we were across, we had approached the roof door and entered the building. Okay, what is this place anyway? Christian asked. It's supposed to be a call center, Lorraine said. Well, let's hope those things aren't inside, I remarked, as I turned down the torch on my phone. The building was dark and unnervingly quiet, with only the sound of our footsteps thudding on the carpet. I was at the back while Christian was in front, his light bobbing up and down. We went down to the second floor when I heard something in the distance from behind. Guys, you hear that? I shot around and perked up my ears. At first I couldn't tell what it was, but the more that I listened, the more the sound started to become clearer, as it was steady and repetitive. It sounded like someone was crying. I slowly made my way towards the source of the sound, the crying growing clearer, but it was coming from the bathroom. I placed my ear against the door. It was definitely someone crying, maybe a little boy. I grabbed the door handle and slowly pushed the door open, which creaked an alarmingly loud creak. Sometime during the creaking, the crying stopped and I gasped at what I saw in front of me. I took a step forward, glancing around in awe. It was my childhood room. There was a bed with star decorations on it, Power Ranger posters on the walls, and a desk where I did my homework in the corner of the room. I looked behind it instead of the hallway from the building that I had just been. I was faced with the closed wooden door of my childhood room. I heard crying again, this time right behind me, and I shot around, only to see a little boy sitting on the bed, 
his face buried in his hands as he wept. It was me as a kid. I remembered this. I mean, of course I did. How could I possibly forget? I was seven years old back then, and I had just received the news of my mom being found dead. There was the police officer in the room with me, and he tried consoling me by giving me his hat and telling me that I needed to be brave. I approached the boy and knelt down. Hey, hey, are you okay? I asked. He ignored me and continued crying. You shouldn't be here, it's not safe, I said with a soft tone. The kid stopped crying but kept holding his hands over his face. Suddenly the light started flickering and the kid raised his head, revealing a rotted face with hollow empty sockets and blackened teeth. I screamed and fell backwards, scrambling until my back hit the wall. The kid stood up, his empty holes for eyes staring directly into me. He opened his mouth and a handful of maggots dropped out of it and onto the floor as he made his way slowly towards me. As the light flickered, the boy disappeared and I was once again instead faced with that walking corpse from the IT office. It slowly made its way towards me, each step it took making a soft, squishy sound on the carpet. It was only inches away from my face and I saw every blemish on it, every crack in its skin, every jag of its teeth, but the eye sockets remained impenetrably black. The creature forcefully put his hand on my shoulder and I screamed once more. Blake, calm down. Jessica was standing in front of me. I frantically looked around for the monster or the boy, but they were gone. Moreover, the room itself was gone and I was on the floor of the office bathroom. What? I stood up spinning in circles. The monster, where's the monster? Blake, are you okay? Jessica asked. It was right there, didn't you see it? I became hysterical. Blake, there is no monster, Christian said patronizingly. You feeling alright? Crap, I said, it must be the fog, I think I'm seeing things. You guys didn't see anything. Wait, where is Lorraine? We looked around, but she was nowhere to be found. But then there was a scream. We rushed outside and found Lorraine in the corner of the kitchen clutching a knife with trembling hands. She was darting her eyes around the room and swinging the knife in random directions. Get away! She screamed with each swing. Lorraine, Lorraine, calm down! Christian shouted as he approached her cautiously, but refused to get too close. Lorraine shot him a confused glance and then started swatting her arms in panic. Get them off me! She screamed. Christian tried approaching her, but one swing of the knife near his face was enough to dissuade him from doing so. Lorraine started a slicing at her forearms, causing deep cuts and blood to gush with each cut. Lorraine, stop it! Jessica cried. But Lorraine would not listen. She pointed the knife inward and started stabbing her own arm higher and higher until her knife reached her shoulder and then her neck until she had lodged it above her collarbone. Her screams immediately stopped and she let go of the knife, her glare turning into a combined look of confusion and terror as she glanced at her own blood-covered palms. She fell on her knees and then collapsed sideways, her eyes wide open staring blankly at the ceiling. Jessica screamed hysterically, while Christian held clumps of hair on his head, 
I approached Lorraine to check her pulse, but it was too late. Had we been quicker, these slices of her forearms could have been treated, but the stab in her neck did her in. Oh, Jesus. Christian's voice quivered. We can't stay here, I hesitantly said. Oh, God, Lorraine. Jessica sobbed, holding her hands over her mouth. We collected ourselves and made our way downstairs without uttering a single word. We were too traumatized by this point to speak at all. In a matter of minutes, we got to the parking lot without any more occurrences. Over there was a mess with cars crashed all over the place and dead bodies strewn about. The office workers obviously tried to make it out in a hurry. The exit was wide open though and the fog didn't seem to make its way inside the lot. We found one car with the doors wide open and the keys still in the ignition. That's our way out, I said. We took as much fabric as we could and stuffed it inside the car at the door frames and other potential leaking places to prevent the fog from getting in. You guys ready? I asked as the engine roared to life. With my heart thumping fast, I floored it and drove out of the parking lot and straight into the wall of yellow fog. As soon as I did, it became almost completely blind to everything around me, being able to see only a few feet ahead. The subway should be that way. Christian pointed and I followed his directions. The street had crashed cars which I had to drive around, but I tried to speed up eager to get out of the fog as soon as possible. That was a mistake because as soon as I did, a person appeared in front of the car. That same eyeless corpse that kept haunting me, just standing in the middle of the road. I swerved, but it was too late. I hit the corpse, which bumped into the windshield and cracked it, and I lost control of the car, crashing it into a nearby wall. I lost consciousness after that. Blake, Blake, wake up. I woke up to a voice that sounded like it was coming from a tunnel far away. My head was throbbing from the crash and the loud blaring of the car horn. Come on, Blake, we gotta go now. I recognized Christian's voice. As my blurry vision started to clear up, I became aware of the severity of the predicament that I was in. The windshield was cracked and thin wisps of yellow smoke were sipping in, gyrating in the car. This shook me wide awake instantly and I shot up in my car seat, frantically swiveling my head from left to right. Christian and Jessica were alright by the looks of it. Put something over your mouth and hold your breath as long as you can, Christian said. The subway is right there. Ready? I took a shirt which I had previously stuffed near the car window and wrapped it around my head, tightly holding my hand over my mouth. Christian and Jessica did the same. Alright, on three, I said as I held the doorknob. I took a deep breath and counted to three on my fingers. On the third count, we burst out into the cold outside. Christian immediately took the lead and Jessica and I followed him. I heard screams somewhere in the distance so I hurried up, practically bumping into Christian from behind. At times I thought that I heard frantic footsteps next to me in the fog, just outside of my line of sight, but whenever I looked in that direction they would stop. I was running out of breath and desperately wanted to breathe in for air, pressure building up in my head but I resisted the urge. 
Christian waited for us to follow him faster as he descended downstairs into the subway. Almost as soon as we had started going downstairs, the fog had cleared out, and we were met with a somewhat clear subway air. We took off our improvised gas masks and stood there, panting for a while. God, I said between breathing. That was my bad. I saw somebody on the road. I... Never mind about that, Jessica said. We need to find our way to the warehouse. It's on Luther Street. She approached the map on the wall, which may as well have been in hieroglyphics to me, and inspected it silently. She ran her index finger across the map here and there for a moment, before turning back to us and saying, Okay, I know the way. It's not too far away. Uh, give me a minute, Christian said. I can't breathe. When he regained his composure, we stood up and followed Jessica through the tunnel. The sound of our footsteps echoing through the place, making me feel like a sitting duck. What? Christian asked, looking back at Jessica. I didn't say anything, she responded. You called my name just now, I heard you, he insisted. Christian, I didn't. Now keep quiet, will ya? We went on for a bit and all of a sudden Jessica stopped, gasping loudly and shooting her stare to her left. Jessica, what's wrong? I asked. Did you guys hear that? She said, pointing her torch somewhere in the dark. Um, no, hear what? Christian asked. Someone screamed just now. You didn't hear it? She asked. Uh, Jessica, it may have been the pipes or something. Oh, come on. Christian said. We continued and it wasn't long until I heard a voice calling my name from somewhere behind. It was so quiet that, that I thought I may have imagined it at first, so I briefly made sure that no one was behind me and continued following my co-workers. Blake. The voice came again but this time directly in my ear. Who's there? I shot around, shining my phone torch around the tunnel. Blake, are you okay? Jessica asked. Yeah, I'm... I turned around to face her and the words got caught in my throat. In front of me stood the same withered corpse from before, staring at me with blank and empty eye sockets. Are you sure you're okay? It asked. A handful of maggots falling out of its mouth and onto the floor with wet thuds. I closed my eyes firmly and pounded on my head. Get out, get out, get out, I repeated with each hit. Hey, Blake. I opened my eyes and was faced with Christian holding my shoulder and Jessica standing behind him with a concerned look. Don't go psychotic on me now, buddy. I exhaled deeply and said, Guys, we've all seen some pretty weird stuff today, but what if none of it is real? What do you mean? Jessica asked. I mean, what if the fog is some sort of chemical which makes you see weird stuff? That's absurd, Christian said. We all saw what happened to Milo, and then what happened to Joe. What did happen to Joe? I asked. Oh, come on, Christian scoffed. No, tell me, what did you see? I started to get accusatory. Christian looked at Jessica as if looking for support. But when she didn't meet his gaze, he shrugged and said, and Joe stumbled out of the bathroom on all fours with some sort of thorn sticking out of his back. 
Jessica immediately jerked her head in Christian's direction. That's not what I saw. When he stumbled out, he was holding his stomach and his intestines were slipping out of his gut. See? I pointed at Jessica, while maintaining eye contact with Christian. Back at the office, I saw something in the IT department, and then something in the bathroom of the call center, and then Milo. He had huge blisters on him and something just dragged him back into the mist. If the fog really was toxic, how did we get through it without getting the same blisters? I saw Milo differently. Christian looked down. He was missing an arm and an eye. I think the fog plays tricks on our mind, based on our fears or something. I've been seeing some things which simply couldn't have been real, I said. They both went silent for a moment. It's true, Jessica nodded with her arms crossed. Tears formed in her eyes, glistening from the torches of our phones as she said, I keep seeing and hearing my late husband. He was in a car accident and I keep seeing him everywhere, all mutilated like he was in the accident. And he blames me for it, but instead of speaking I just hear gurgling noises because his neck is broken. She put her hand over her eyes and wept. Christian put his arm around her shoulder. It does make sense when you put it that way, he said. I keep spacing out here and there, finding myself on the top of skyscrapers, or falling down and then I blink and I'm back in reality. I thought that I was losing my mind. When Jessica finally calmed down, she asked, what about you, Blake? What do you see? I looked down and thought for a while, remembering the corpse which kept haunting me. I, I see my mother. I closed my eyes and sighed deeply before continuing. My dad used to drink a lot and beat my mom. One day she couldn't take it anymore and left, so I was left to live with my dad. He became a changed man right after she left. He stopped drinking and he never laid a finger on me. It was around that time that he locked the basement tightly and never allowed me to get anywhere near it. I was seven years old when my dad left the basement door open and went to work. Of course, I was curious about it so I did what any seven-year-old would do. I went inside. I saw that there was a completely normal room inside with a small TV which was on, a bed and a rocking chair. There was a person sitting in the chair facing away from me at first. I didn't know who would be sitting in our basement. So I called out to the person but they didn't respond. Heck, they weren't even moving. I went closer and then stepped around the chair to see who it was. It was a dead body and by the looks of it the person had been dead for years. With dried up skin, black empty eye sockets and a mouth which was agape. Although I was a kid, I knew that the right thing to do would be to call the cops. So I did so and not long after they got to the house, they had arrested my dad and informed me of the sad news that the dead person was actually my mother. Jesus, Blake, Jessica said. I continued. According to the cops, my dad drank too much one night and got too rough with my mom. She broke her neck and he couldn't face what he did. So he put her body in the basement and tried to live a normal family life, as if nothing ever happened. Jesus, bro, Christian remarked. 
A moment of silence went by before he asked tentatively, So what happened to you after that? My aunt took care of me and that was pretty much that. As for my dad, I heard that he killed himself in prison years ago. Not that I care. The tunnel was silent for a long time now. I didn't like being the center of attention, so I said, Look, let's just get to the warehouse. We might find some answers there. Okay, it's close now, Jessica said. We walked in silence for a while, still apprehensive over the voices that we heard in the tunnel. A few minutes of walking and Jessica stopped in front of another map at a train station and observed it under the phone light, shining it in various directions. Christian and I stood by her side dumbly, like students in a school project that have no idea what to do, and thus let the most competent project member deal with the whole thing. And this is pretty much how it was at work too. A moment later, she turned in the opposite direction and said, This way, come on. She strode towards these stairs, too fast for us to follow her at our normal pace. The stairs went up into a brightly illuminated maze of tunnels. There were shops on all sides, but most of them had shutters down. When we had turned around the corner, Jessica stopped and gasped. Christian and I ran there quickly and were faced with the body of a woman who was lying face down on the floor. Dried blood stained the floor around her head, and from the side of her head which was facing up, I saw a blue eye staring vacantly at nothing. Are you guys seeing this? Jessica asked. If by this you mean a dead body, then yes, Christian said. Eh, we better go, I said tearing my gaze away from the woman. We carefully went around her with hasty steps and followed Jessica to the bottom of the next set of stairs. She stopped so abruptly that Christian almost bumped into her and I into him. Hey, what gives? he asked. Jessica stared at the top of the stairs, so we followed her gaze there. Just beyond the stairwell, we saw in the night sky a part of a building. No fog and there's the warehouse, she said, pointing up. Nice work, Jess, Christian said. We climbed the stairs and felt the cold air on our faces once more. We were directly in front of the big warehouse, untouched by the fog. It became clear from first glance that the building had huge AC-like devices, with huge fans plastered all over its walls, which we assumed was the reason behind the building's protection from the fog. There was no trace of the fog on the premise, but it surrounded the building itself like a thick blanket, making it impossible to see further than the pedestrian's pavement. The fog seemed to swirl ominously at the edge of the barrier, but never went past it. We went around the fence until we found an open gate and from there, a big door which led inside. The first thing which we had noticed immediately which got us a little worried was the fact that the door was wide open. As we got closer, a loud humming noise started to permeate the air, and it became clear that it was coming from the AC. Hello? Jessica shouted as soon as we had stepped inside the building, her voice echoing in the place. Although the warehouse was engulfed in darkness, it immediately became clear that it was so big that we would need, by my rough estimate, at least five minutes of walking in a straight line in order to reach the other side. 
Hundreds of sealed boxes were neatly stacked in various rows of the place, some too tall to be reached without a ladder or a forklift. I keep it down, will you? Christian said in a hushed tone. Why, there could be survivors. Jessica shook her head. Yeah, but for all we know, they could be delusional, like Lorraine was. Let's keep it down for now until we assess the situation. We started to explore the area, our phone torches pointing in front of us. I took point this time and I wished that I hadn't, because when I turned around the corner of one of the box stacks, my heart nearly jumped out of my chest. The light from my torch illuminated a human leg strewn on the floor, surrounded by a pool of dried blood. As I moved the light further up, I realized the leg was actually severed. Jesus, I said and heard my co-workers curse under their breasts behind me. I pointed my light in the direction ahead and illuminated a dead body of a man on the floor. His mouth agape and trickles of blood had dried in his mouth. His eyes were closed so he almost looked as if he was sleeping. His leg was missing and around was a large pool of blood not yet fully dry. We ran into more and more scenes that a fan could only wish for. A severed arm here, a crushed head there, blood all over the place and so on. What happened here? Did the fog get to them before they vented it out? Chris asked. We couldn't tell exactly who or what had killed them, but judging by the fact that a lot of them still clutched various bloodstained tools, we had deduced that the fog must have caused them to hallucinate and then attack each other. Now look over here. Jessica pointed to the far end of the aisle. There was a slow flickering red light at the far end. We carefully followed it, stepping around the dead bodies. Upon reaching the light, it became obvious that it was coming from a radio on the desk. It looked old, but well-preserved. Holy crap, maybe we can use this to call for help, Christian said. Well, let's give it a try. I hesitantly agreed, not even sure how to operate it. There was a dial which we slowly turned until we heard static. As we continued to turning it, the static slowly started mixing up with inaudible voices. We turned it a little more and the voices became a lot clearer. It works, Jessica said. Let's try to contact them. I flicked a button and leaned closer to the microphone. Can anyone hear me? This is an emergency. There was silence for a moment and I opened my mouth to shout again. When a voice came from the radio, staticky but clear enough. Please state your situation. Over. My excitement surged and I quickly leaned in and said, We're in danger. We're located in the warehouse of Luther Street and need immediate rescue. Please send someone. Over. Please repeat. Over. The voice calmly came in. I repeated what I said slowly this time. A moment of silence went by before the voice resounded again. A rescue chopper has been dispatched. Stand by. Yes, finally, Christian shouted, raising his fist victoriously. Okay, let's head out. I tried saying before a rough and deep voice interrupted me from behind. What are you doing? He said scoldingly. All three of us turned around, pointing our lights at a middle-aged man in the blue happy hour uniform. 
His bald head was covered in sweat and dust and his eyes were wide in fear. His chest was heaving up and down, as if he had just been running. What did you do? He asked again, darting his eyes around. Hey, don't worry, we called rescue via radio. They'll be here soon, I said. You did what? We have to run. Oh, God. He grabbed his head and paced around before turning to us and saying, We have to run now. Wait, what? Why? Jessica asked. Because that's not rescue, he said. What? I laughed at the absurdity of his statement. We have to hide now, the stranger commanded. Christian, Jessica, and I shot each other perplexed glances, but the man was already striding down the aisle. We caught up to him, following closely behind. Wait just a second, Christian said. Not now, they're almost here, listen. The man said and raised an index finger, his bald head glistening from the sweat. We perked up our ears and then we heard it. The whirring of a helicopter outside. It was barely audible at first, but it soon amplified, until it permeated the air entirely. It was against all human logic to think that these military guys were here to neutralize us. I mean, that's the stuff of Hollywood movies. But when I heard the door violently burst open, something in my gut told me to stay away from them as far as possible. Get behind now, the man said peeking around the corner of a big stack of boxes. We got behind cover and turned off our torches, as the man continued peeking. Any sign of them? A voice from somewhere in the warehouse asked. Negative. Another responded. Keep your eyes peeled. We can't let them get out of here. I saw beams of flashlight protruding from behind the corner for a moment before disappearing and engulfing us in darkness once more. The worker pulled out something from his pocket and held it firmly in his hand. My eyes fell on the object that he was holding and I saw a small vial. Yellow wisps of smoke twirled around in the bottle between his fingers, like trapped smoke that was trying to look for a way out. Is that the fog? I asked quietly. He looked back and said, Prepare to move. He faced the direction of the soldiers and chucked the vial in their direction, immediately retreating behind cover. There was a sound of glass breaking a moment later and the soldiers frantically started shouting. Gunshots filled the air, startling all of us and the old man who threw the vial gestured for us to follow him immediately. Hold your fire, one of the soldiers shouted, but his voice was drowned out by a series of gunshots. We ran from one cover to the other and as I glanced towards these soldiers' direction, I saw a thick blanket of yellow fog, illuminated by a number of flashlights that seemed to be pointed in various directions. Some of the flashlights lay still on the floor. The gunfire had completely subsided soon, and the only sound that filled the air was the heavy footsteps of our group running across the concrete floor. Stay back. One of the soldiers shouted, shooting somewhere and then screaming in a panic. I looked back and saw the wisps of yellow smoke slowly spreading towards us from around the corner, like tendrils of an insidious parasite, threatening to voraciously devour us. This way, the old man stopped in the middle of the aisle and knelt down. 
He opened a big hatch and pointed for us to go down a ladder, which was practically invisible in the dark. And we were too panicked to worry about that right now, so we followed his order. First Jessica, then Christian, and then me. I blindly grabbed the cold metal bars feverishly, carefully taking step by step down. Hey, watch it. Christian said when I accidentally stepped on his hand. I glanced down but only saw a faint light at the bottom, which seemed about a dozen feet below. It renewed my hope because the last thing that I wanted was to be stuck in a dark, claustrophobia-inducing room, with the only way out being in the direction of the soldiers and the fog. I felt my feet touch the floor after what felt like minutes, even though in reality it was just seconds. I looked around the dark room. There was a dim glow coming from a fragile-looking ceiling light, which illuminated rows of boxes neatly stacked atop one another. These boxes were different than the ones above, though. They looked more sturdy and secure, reminiscent of military boxes. They had the warning, do not roughly handle on them, and had heavy-duty padlocks. What is this? Jessica asked curiously observing one of the stacks. I saw that one of the boxes had been opened and I approached it carefully, inspecting the contents. As soon as I realized what was inside, I recoiled in surprise and fear. Don't touch that, the worker that saved us said, scuttling past me and closing the lid of the box with a loud thud. Before the box was closed, I managed to observe a handful of vials full of yellow-looking smoke, which furiously swirled inside and contrasted the dark room. Is that what's causing the fog? I asked. A few more gunshots came from above, which made all of us unanimously look up. The man sighed, wiping the sweat off his forehead. Yeah, the military, I'll tell you. I didn't even know what I was signing up for, and by the time that I figured it out, I was in too deep to get out alive. What exactly happened here? Christian asked. The man shook his head with a disappointed look on his face and said, I don't know when it all started. We were assigned to work here a few months back, and the company didn't really give us any details. They just said that we'd have to stack boxes, and that's it. We found it strange the military guys were bringing in and taking out the boxes, though, and the way that they're secured. He pointed to the stack next to him. I'm no genius, but you don't keep dairy products in these kinds of containers. Anyway, we were never really allowed to open any boxes. Not that we would be able to, either. So Happy Hour was in cahoots with the military on some secret project, I asked. Oh, no, not exactly, the man said. Happy Hour is in charge of the project. You see, Happy Hour operates as a supermarket on the surface, but that's just their public image, so that they can conceal their true intentions. There was a moment of silence as my co-workers and I stared at the man. He continued, These, these things right here in the boxes, they're extremely dangerous. One of these vials is enough to cover an area of roughly 10,000 square feet. Now you can imagine what would happen if there was an accident with one of the boxes, severe enough to cause a chain reaction, an entire city gone to crap. I don't even know what exactly happened, but 
I suspect my coworker James tried opening one. He had been eyeing them for a while now. Idiot probably hit one too hard. And the next thing we knew, there was an explosion and the fog was everywhere. How did you manage to survive? Jessica asked. This. He stepped out of the light for a few seconds and came back with a gas mask. I wore this sucker and stayed down here until the area got vented. And how do you know all of this about happy hours operations? I asked suspiciously. They have all of it written right here. He pulled out a crumpled piece of paper from his pocket. The idiots left it downstairs here and I intend to show it to the police as soon as I'm out of here. So let me get this straight, Christian said. Happy hour is not actually happy hour, but rather some evil organization that handles these fog vials. But what for? The man shrugged. That beats me, maybe trading it on the black market. Using it to take over the world, it doesn't matter now anyway. So what does it do anyway? Jessica asked. I don't know the details, but I can tell you that it affects your brain and causes severe hallucinations. It was engineered very scrupulously in order to maximize its effects and make it deadly. I mean, can you imagine? You have a base full of hostiles. You throw in one of these bad boys and they kill each other without you ever having to deal with them yourself. It's no wonder that every army would want their hands on it. So what now? We can't stay down here forever, Jessica said. Uh, no, we can't. They'll be here to collect their stuff and clean up all the evidence as soon as the fog starts to clear up. However, that may not happen in days. Our best bet is to get out of here as soon as we can. Here. He stepped out of the light once more. There was a sound of shuffling for a few seconds until he came back, holding three more gas masks. I put these on and let's go. We donned the masks while the old man carefully performed a thorough check on us to make sure that they were on properly. So with these masks, we can just walk out of the city with no trouble, right? Christian asked. Uh, no, it's not that simple. The old man said as he put his own mask on. We'll have to get to the only checkpoint which is safe. It's not too far away. Why didn't you try to run away until now? And Jessica asked with a muffled voice under the mask. I was going to, but when this all first happened, I was hiding and then I was too afraid to step into the fog and so on. It doesn't matter. Now we're ready to go. And how do you know that somebody won't try to kill us at the checkpoint? I asked. And they won't. The military will be waiting at the checkpoint. What we saw in here was not the military. He grabbed two of the glowing vials and put them in his pockets. We need to give this to them, so they can study it and put a stop to these people. He said as he grabbed a nearby baseball bat. He gave it a few swings, flaying the air with a whistling sound that the bat made. With that, we got out of the bunker, leaving the plethora of weaponized boxes behind us. The fog was so thick inside the warehouse now that we had to hold our hands together. While the old man held his free hand on the aisle of boxes in order to see where he was going. Luckily, before we reached the exit, the venting system had started to do its thing and the fog had somewhat dispersed, giving us meager visibility. We were lucky enough not to run into the bodies of the soldiers. 
It felt relieving to get out of there and finally see something in front which wasn't just a blanket of yellow. I had started to feel uncomfortable with my gas mask by then, but when I tried taking it off, the old man had shouted, Hey, do not do that. And I didn't need to be reminded twice. He seemed to know his way around, so I decided to obey. He took a moment to orient himself before pointing over yonder and saying, Okay, this way. We followed him through the clear air until we reached the wall of fog again. We hesitated, but the old man didn't seem to mind at all, as he simply stepped through the swirling wall, vanishing within the deadly yellow in an instant. We followed closely behind, keeping at each other's heels in order to avoid getting lost. The old man was in front with me behind and Jessica and Christian at the back. How far away is it? I shouted to our guide. A few more minutes, he said. We walked for a couple of minutes through the thick fog on the streets, taking a few disorienting turns, when all of a sudden the old man was gone. Hey, old man! I shouted, not even knowing his real name. Where are you? No response. Hey, Christian shouted, but like me, was met with unnerving silence. We walked in circles for minutes, calling out to him, but there was no response. Where did he go? I said, feeling defeated. And then I heard a loud thump from behind me. I turned around and saw Jessica on the floor. Christian stood there, bewildered, staring at her co-worker. Jessica? No, no, this isn't real, that's not her. He muttered to himself, shaking his head. As he took a step back, a hand reached out from the fog and pulled him back. The yellow mist instantly swallowing him. No, no, please, I heard Christian shout, before another loud thump had occurred. And then another and another and soon those thumps turned into cracking and then mushy sounds, as if somebody was hitting a wet pile. And then it stopped completely. I stood frozen, my panicked breasts fogging up my mask goggles, as I contemplated if I should run or avoid moving altogether. Was my mask faulty? Was I hallucinating? I swallowed painfully and took a step forward, and the sight almost made me puke inside my mask. Christian's body lay on the floor with blood all around his head, or whatever was left of it. His face was practically bashed in, one eye sticking out, staring into nothingness. Bits of brain splattered around. Another thump resounded right in my ear, and this one caused a sharp pang, a pain in my head, and it toppled me over. I fell down, my head spinning and my vision blurry. A pair of boots came into my view as somebody stopped right in front of me. You should know better than to trust strangers. A voice said and when I looked up I saw the old man holding his baseball bat firmly. Blood still dripped from it onto the floor and the sudden realization hit me of how stupid we were. He knelt down and sighed, shaking his head. That's a real shame. I didn't want to do this, but you guys just had to show up and screw up my plans. I was doing you a favor, though. The guys at the checkpoint aren't really rescue. There's some shady people who I plan to sell the vials to. Oh, and those guys back at the warehouse. They were a rescue. They were going to quarantine you for a while, yeah, but they were there to rescue you. Anyway, I gotta go. 
I'll take your lady friend with me because I assume those guys are going to need a test subject. I'll let you live, but don't try to follow us. I'll kill you, I muttered, frothing at the mouth out of pure anger. I see, he calmly said. Well, I can't have that. He sighed, shaking his head, as if contemplating what to do with a problematic kid. He reached out to me and with a strong yank, he pulled off my mask. I watched in horror as the old man threw my gas mask away into the fog and picked up Jessica with a grunt. He put her over his back and left the sight whistling, vanishing into the mist. My head was still spinning from the hit that I got on my head, but I did my best to scramble on all fours. I feverishly felt the ground, frantically looking for the mask but was only met with the cold concrete, surrounded by the yellow mist. I knew that I didn't have much time left, because I started to hear whispers around me. I tried ignoring them, knowing that they were just a figment of my imagination, but the longer I stayed, the louder and more intense they got. I lost my cool when I heard a scream directly in my ear. I turned around and saw that same visage of a rotting body standing in front of me, with its mouth widely open, producing a high-pitched shriek. I started running, the scream following closely behind me, never changing their pitch, tone, or distance. It was always directly behind me, and before I knew it, I was faced with an open building and I rushed inside, slamming the door behind me. The screams instantly stopped, and I was met with an eerie silence. I sighed, steadying my heavy breathing but I could feel my breast becoming shallow again when I turned around. I was in my parents' living room. Blake, don't make me say it twice. I heard a stern male voice say from nearby. I followed the voice to the basement door and saw my dad standing there in stained clothes, towering above myself when I was a kid. Dad, please. Little Blake cried, wiping his tears. My dad bent down and shook little me by the shoulders violently. You will do as I say, Blake. She's your mother and you have to respect her. He took a nearby platter with food and shoved it into the boy's hands, practically pushing him down the stairs. And don't come back until you fetter the whole thing, spoiled brat. He muttered that last sentence to himself and slumped down on the sofa, grabbing the beer bottle from the table and he turned on the TV. Although my dad passed right next to me, he seemed completely oblivious to my presence. I glanced down at the basement and followed the boy closely behind, as he went down step by step, the dishes clattering from the shaking in his hands. The basement was illuminated by the static on the TV, and the rocking chair which was in front of it was partially illuminated. Mommy? The boy said between sobs as it approached and gently put the platter on the coffee table. I brought you some food. I came around to the other side of the boy while not taking my eyes off my mother's frozen figure in the rocking chair. She wasn't rotted this time though. She looked like she was peacefully sleeping, the light from the TV illuminating her face. Mommy, the boy said again except it wasn't the boy. It was me who said it. A little Blake was gone and I was instead in his place. I took a careful step closer and closer until 
I was only inches away from my mother's face. Her head was thumped to the side, her mouth and eyes closed peacefully. The TV suddenly turned off, leaving me in total darkness. When I came back on, my mother's body was in a more deteriorating state, with pale and bloated skin. The TV flickered again and again, and every time it did, my mother degraded more until she was all decomposed, with sunken holes for eyes and brownish skin. I suddenly remembered all those years of how my father forced me to go downstairs and bring food to my mother, talk to her as if she were still alive. Day after day, she slowly decomposed. I didn't tell my coworkers the full truth. I mean, how could I? I never told anybody about it and pushed it far back to the darkest corners of my mind, only remembering it in my nightmares. Tears walled up in my eyes and I put my hands on my mother's. I'm so sorry, I said, crying. Suddenly she grabbed me by the wrist with a feverish grip and I strained to break free. As she slowly stood up with the sound of cracking skin and snapping bones. Just before she fully stood up, I broke free of her grasp and fell backwards, knocking over the platter of food. My mother slowly made her way towards me, making a low gurgling noise with each step. I looked to my left and saw the knife which had dropped from the plate. I scrambled towards it, grabbed it, and drove the knife into her neck over and over. Black blood started oozing out and the gurgling noise intensified, getting louder by the second. The creature that was my mother fell on its knees, but I continued stabbing it, infuriated and completely under the control of my boiling anger. I felt a hand on my shoulder as I turned around and stabbed the knife into that person as well. With a fierce cry and then my rage disappeared in an instant. I stared at Jessica as her look of confusion turned into horror when she found and pulled the knife out of her neck, causing blood to spurt out in large quantities. I didn't know what to do so I simply stared as she collapsed on the floor and stopped breathing altogether. A big pool of blood forming around her body. Jessica, no! I knelt down, grabbing her by the back of the head, only just then realizing how much my hands and clothes were covered in blood. Jessica, I'm sorry, I said, closing her eyes with my fingers. I looked around and saw that I was in the lobby of a hotel. Aside from Jessica, there was also the dead body of the man who had crossed us over. He still had his gas mask on and was strewn on the floor with stab wounds all over his neck. I approached him and took off his mask, staring at his vacant eyes, not feeling remorse for killing him. I put on the mask and searched his pockets for the vials. They were there so I took both of them and went towards the exit. Almost as soon as I had opened the door I was met with a group of soldiers wearing gas masks who pointed their guns at me. I raised my hands telling them not to shoot, but they ignored me and simply went past me into the building. The sounds of voices, helicopters, and vehicles permeated the streets and just then I realized that there was no fog anymore. The city was a mess with dead bodies and crashed cars everywhere, but there was no sign of the fog. The military was everywhere with choppers and armored vehicles in the city, making it look like a war zone. I was escorted to a base outside the city and treated for injuries. It wasn't long until they figured that I had the vials on me, 
so they started to interrogate me about them. I told them about the warehouse and the secret weapon used by Happy Hour, and they immediately dispatched someone there. Upon return, they said that they found the warehouse and the underground hatch that led inside, but it was empty, with no boxes full of vials anywhere to be found. They made me sign a bunch of papers which was basically them forcing me to a vow of silence. The city has been off limits for months now and I keep experiencing vivid hallucinations every day. I either see my dead mother or my co-workers, or I wake up to find Jessica strangling me while I'm in my bed, with the knife still sticking out of her throat. I learned to live with the nightmares, the PTSD, and the guilt. But one thing still bothers me though. I can't find any information on the company called Happy Hour. The websites no longer exist. Their supermarkets have been closed down and no one seems to know why. Those boxes in the warehouse went missing just before the fog had dispersed, which means that someone took them. And the next time they use them, they'll probably do it in a more calculated manner. Cozy up in style this fall with the unmatched comfort of MeUndies. MeUndies has the softest and most breathable underwear and loungewear that I've ever experienced. Whether you're on the grind during the work week or posted up on the couch watching your favorite Halloween movies, MeUndies is here to keep you comfy. I've recently given MeUndies a try and they are the most comfortable undies that I've ever worn. The fabric they use is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. Plus, it's breathable, stretchy, and comfortable, making it ideal for all-day wear. To stay festive during spooky season, MeUndies has new designs, such as Fabulous and Bats Night Out, along with many more. Make sure to go check those out and be ready to go for Halloween. To get 25% off your first order plus free shipping, go to MeUndies.com slash MrCreeps. That's MeUndies.com slash MrCreeps for 25% off plus free shipping. MeUndies, comfort from the outside in. I'm a government agent tasked with protecting our national security. Written by Doomed Geek. It was the graveyard shift. I carried a cup of industrial strength black coffee over to my desk and I logged on. Dozens of alerts waited for me. I rubbed the stubble on my chin and sighed. This wasn't the life that I had dreamed of when I had graduated, but along with my degree, I had acquired a mountain of debt, and the job gave me a regular wage. I worked for the agency, a branch of the government that operated outside the sphere of public accountability, all in the name of national security. I was a communications technician, a low-level grunt who was kept in the dark and had digital manure shoveled onto him. I opened the first alert. It was a sound file that had been captured as part of the agency's monitoring program. The program's digital tendrils reached out across the country and far beyond. Certain keywords and phrases would set off an alert, as would communications from select locations. I would then have to decide if an alert should be escalated. One day, AIs would be able to do this, 
but for now it was my responsibility. The sound file was seven seconds long. I yawned as I pressed play. There was the hiss of background noise and then a man's voice said, We are picking up increasing levels of underground activity. It's off the scale. Please advise. He sounded stressed, which was fair enough. From the snippet of information that I had, it sounded like he was in a stressful situation. But was it enough for me to send this upstairs? The sound file came with a transmission time and the location that it was sent from. I checked the transmission time. It was already six hours old. That didn't surprise me. We worked through the alerts as quickly as we could, but there was always a backlog which led to delays. Next, I brought up a map of the location and saw that it had come from a civilian research base in the Arctic. Smack bang in the middle of nowhere, according to the library image that I had on screen. I called up another view, this time taken from a satellite that had passed over the location just two hours before. I zoomed right in. A cold chill spread through my body. Where the research base had been, there was now only wreckage. The prefab units which the base had been constructed from were broken apart and twisted. I could make out equipment scattered across the icy ground. I stopped looking then because I did not want to see any human remains. My hand was shaking when I escalated the alert. When I had been going through the recruitment process to join the agency, I had had to do a basic medical. I had to be healthy enough to work a keyboard for 12 hours at a time without keeling over. That was it. While I sat on my ever-expanding backside at my workstation, I knew that there were other agency employees out there in the field putting life and limb on the line, and this division of labor was fine by me. I was not built for danger. And to help calm my nerves after seeing the satellite image, I went to get two donuts from the staff canteen. By the time that I had eaten them and was working my way through the never-ending list of stacked-up alerts, I was already putting the research base out of my mind. Other people who knew what they were doing and were being paid a lot more than me were dealing with it now. By the time my shift was over, my main concern was, would my lousy next-door neighbors have their TV on full blast all day again when I get home? This made it impossible for me to get any sleep. I had tried explaining that I worked nights so I needed some peace and quiet during the day, but they didn't care at all. I logged off, stretched, dragged myself out of my chair, and I headed for the exit. Another graveyard shift was history. Only, while I was looking for my pass to swipe myself out, my supervisor appeared. He normally stayed in his own office and communicated with me by messages, even though we only sat a dozen feet apart. Seeing him striding towards me and with a scowl in his face, it made my guts tighten. Where are you going? He asked making it sound to me as if I was doing something wrong. Um, home, 
I replied. He shook his head, crossing his arms over his chest, and said, Oh, no, you're not. I just got a phone call from senior management. They want you upstairs in briefing room number one, now. Your pass has been updated to give you access. And then he leaned in closer and growled. I have no idea why they want you, but if you have done something wrong and it reflects badly on me, I'll make your life miserable. Capiche? All I could do was nod miserably and trudge over the elevator. I had no idea either what was going on, but this all felt like a lose-lose situation to me. As the elevator rose, I thought wistfully about my neighbor's TV keeping me awake. All of a sudden, that didn't seem so bad after all. A couple of minutes later, the elevator deposited me on the upper floor of the agency building. I had never been there before. I blinked uncomfortably because of the early morning light which was streaming in through the windows and I looked around. Everything was very shiny including the door on the other side of the corridor. It opened and a man stepped out. He looked about my age but he was clean shaven and wore a crisp white shirt and dark tie with a smart suit and shoes that were polished within an inch of their life. I was painfully aware of how crumpled my own shirt was, partly because I didn't even own an iron, and partly because this was the third night in a row that I had worn it. He held out his hand and introduced himself as Agent Wilcox. We shook and then he said, This way, and he wheeled around and went back into the room. The place that I most needed to go was the restroom because of my increasingly disturbed guts but I figured I'd better follow him. I took a deep breath and stepped into the room. A long and very shiny table dominated the space. A dozen gray-haired men, all wearing identical suits, sat around it. They looked uniformly somber. Wilcox was standing next to a screen set into a wall, an image taken from the satellite of the devastated research base filled the screen. I had no idea what I was meant to do, so I stood there feeling incredibly uncomfortable as Wilcox cleared his throat, and then he began to speak. You've all been read into the fact that we were monitoring this location because there was an incident there 35 years ago. At the time, the command team believed it had been dealt with permanently, and no flags were raised when the new research base was sighted there two years ago. We now know, thanks to the alert received last night, that this was not a correct reading of the situation. He paused for a moment to let this sink in, and then continued. No additional transmissions were made from the base last night, so we can state that the catastrophic incident was rapid and complete, which means that we're now in cleanup mode. A legend has been created for civilian use stating that the damage was caused by seismic activity. Our next action is to find and eliminate the perpetrators of the incident. As we are all aware, the agency's resources are primarily focused on dealing with cyber threats. Additionally, we have boots on the ground in sectors 618 and 31, 
We simply don't have the active personnel to send to the Arctic and deal with this. That's why I am suggesting that we resurrect the squad which dealt with the situation in 1988. This is a highly unusual approach, but we have a problem and I am proposing a solution. Having said this, he paused again and looked around the table. The suits glanced at each other. There was nodding and guarded smiles and then one of them simply said, Approved. Mocox's arm twitched as if he was fighting down a salute and then he replied, Thank you, sir. We won't let you down. He started to stride out of the room and indicated that I should follow him. My guts churning and my head spinning. I did. We went back into the elevator, but instead of descending back to the safe, familiar ground levels, it took us up, and I found myself stepping out onto the roof of the agency's building. There was a helipad there and standing in the center of it, a transporter helicopter. I had only ever seen one on TV and in movies before and close up, it looked massive. This was a serious piece of kit. Wilcox turned to me and said, Beauty, isn't it? Let's get on board and get going. Time is of the essence here. Me on a helicopter? No way, I thought. Uh, I can't, I tried to explain. My shift is over and I need to go home now to rest up and then be back at my desk by 8pm. He shook his head. The squad that I'm putting back together needs a comm specialist who's up to speed on all the latest tech, and I'm seconding you to that role. I'll clear it with your supervisor. Now get your backside into gear. You're a field agent now. A field agent? No! I tried to protest, but my words were drowned out by the sound of the helicopter's blades whirring into action. On legs that felt like they had had all the bones removed, I staggered on board of the helicopter. To my immense relief, I saw that there was a restroom. It was seriously cramped, but I didn't care. I emerged a while later and weaved my way to a seat, where I strapped myself in. Through the window, I saw that we were soaring over the city. I had lived here for five years and thought that it was a dull and cluttered place. But seen from on high, the interlinking highways and clusters of buildings had an energy that made me think of the place in a whole new way. I even felt disappointed as we started to leave the city behind. The buildings grew more and more spread out, and we were soon passing over the ordered layouts of estates of family homes. On the edge of one estate, there was a sports field. I could make out the teams in a baseball game. And then they slipped away as well, and the countryside opened out ahead of us. Scattered farmhouses surrounded by fields began to dominate the view. I turned away from the window, a smile on my face. Despite everything, I realized that I was enjoying the ride. I wondered if there was a catering service on board. A triple sausage and egg muffin with a coffee on the side would have been ideal. I was just about to ask Wilcox how I ordered when the helicopter began to descend. I peered out at the approaching ground. It was a sprawling patch of weed-covered land bordering a property. We landed with a jolt. Wilcox turned to me and said, 
Nathaniel Jones led the squad that handled the original incident. He had retired from the agency eight years ago and has lived out here since then. We've kept a file on him, of course. There's a note in the file that you should be aware of. It says, Approach with caution. Leaving that comment hanging, he disembarked from the helicopter. I didn't see why I was needed, so I sat there staring into space until I couldn't ignore the dirty look that Wilcox was giving me. Reluctantly, I clambered out after him and followed as he strode towards the property. It was a ramshackle wood cabin sitting in the middle of a yard littered with broken machinery. A sign nailed to a stake read, no trespassers, no hawkers, no officials. Um, does Jones know that we're coming? I asked. He doesn't have the internet or a telephone, Wilcox answered. And the agency hasn't used carrier pigeons for a hundred years, so no. Great, I thought. My guts once again twisting tight inside me. If Wilcox was scared, he wasn't showing it. He stepped up to the door and knocked on it sharply. The door creaked as it opened to reveal the man standing inside. I couldn't see his face, but I could tell that he wasn't pleased to have unexpected visitors by the way that he was pointing both barrels at us. I cowered. Wilcox said in an insanely calm voice, I am Agent Wilcox. I'm here to activate the clause in your contract which calls you back into service. Jones must have been a tobacco chewer because a hideous dollop of the stuff landed on one of Wilcox's very polished shoes. I figured that meant Jones wasn't keen on being an agency man again. Wilcox glanced at his shoe but kept his professional detachment intact and went on. The reason why is that there has been a new incident in the Arctic. It was at the exact same location where you and a squad of fellow agents zapped hostiles into oblivion back in the 1980s. At this, Jones lowered his weapon. His face was weathered and he had a thick gray beard. Dang, he said. You telling me they back? I am afraid so, Wilcox answered solemnly. I have been authorized to bring the original squad back into service so that we can deal with the threat. To my surprise, Jones burst out laughing at this. Are you serious, son? He said when he had gotten control of himself. More than half of the squad are with their maker and the rest of us are just plain old. Wilcox stood up straighter, cleared his throat and said, Your country needs you. Jones looked him in the eye for a moment and then asked, How much will my country pay me for my time? Tax-free, of course, and in cash. Wilcox named a price. It was more than I earned in a year, a lot more. And it sealed the deal. Jones grinned, revealing a row of stained and cracked teeth. I was introduced to Jones in passing and then the two of them boarded the helicopter deep in conversation. I followed, grumbling under my breath all the way. Ten minutes later, we were back in the air. Jones was in the seat next to mine. He was fast asleep and snoring loudly. Wilcox, meanwhile, was tapping something into a tablet computer, 
while I was left thinking that it was too late to ask for a raise in my salary. And I was still trying to get up the courage to ask when the helicopter once more began to descend. I looked out to see where we were landing on waste ground behind a bar. It was a tight squeeze and I dared not look as the helicopter blades almost shaved off some of the bar's guttering. I had no idea why we were here. By now, this came as no surprise. Despite being a field agent, I was still being kept in the dark and having dirt unloaded on me. Wilcox led the way out, followed by Jones who I noticed was much more sprightly on his feet than me despite the age difference. We headed around to the front where faded letters painted on the window spelled out, Mulhoons. From these cigarette ends and broken glass covering the ground, it was already clear that this was not a classy establishment. As I followed the other two inside, I realized that I had been generous. A sign above the door reading, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here, would not have been out of place. Despite the fact that it was only just after midday, the bar was shrouded in a dust-infected gloom. Men were hunched silently over glasses at the long and dirt-encrusted bar. There were flies everywhere, little critters with no respect for personal space. And the smell of stale sweat and stale beer made me cover my mouth and my nose with my hand. I was a slob, but the patrons and owner of the bar had taken low standards to a new, nauseating level. It was bad, and even Wilcox's smooth veneer looked to have slipped slightly. Joan seemed unperturbed, though. He was looking over to where a group of men were gathered around a pool table in one corner of the bar. My eyes were adjusting to the half-light by now and while trying to swat away the flies with one hand, I made out the pool game had an audience of half a dozen good old boys. One of the players had a baseball cap on backwards, and his gut hung down over his belt as he leaned forward to take a shot. He skewed the ball well wide, cursed and then picked up a bottle of the beer and took a long swig. The second player was tall and rangy, with a quick and smooth movement. He dispatched two balls into opposite pockets with one shot. I was impressed. His opponent, it turned out, was not. Dang cheating, son of a... He yelled out and smashed the now empty bottle on the side of the pool table. I'll show you what happens to hustlers around here. He shouted and began to circle the table waving the jagged edge of the bottle at the man that he had accused of dishonesty. The rangy fellow stood his ground until his raging opponent was closer, then grabbed the arm holding the bottle and I winced. The sound of a bone breaking filled the bar, followed close after by a yelp of pain. The man who had been holding the broken bottle fell to his knees, clutching his broken arm. The people who had been following the pool game until moments before had stood watching the confrontation until then, but now it was clear whose side they were on. All six of them threw themselves at the man. A part of me wondered if we should help. Wilcox showed no signs of intervening though, while Jones just stood there with a smile adding more creases to his face. 
As it turned out, the fellow was fine all on his own. One of his attackers was propelled across the room and crashed into the bar. Another followed, almost landing at my feet. From the glazed expression in his eyes, I imagined that he was seeing some serious stars. The next three would-be assailants were dispatched in the same way. The final attacker is standing and backed away slightly. He clearly reckoned that he needed an advantage and grabbed a hold of a couple of pool cues and then began to swing them around his head as if they were in a cheap action movie. The man didn't even blink. Using the pool table as leverage, he launched a boot into the other man's guts. The pool cues cluttered to the ground, followed by the man who had been holding them. The fight was done. The winner strolled over and went straight up to Jones. They high-fived and then Jones said, McKinley, this is Agent Wilcox. I told him that we would find you here at this time of day. And this young man is the radio guy. Nobody had told me that that was my title but I just went with the flow and listened as Jones explained how the squad was being resurrected and why. McKinley seemed to take all of this in stride and said that he was on board. He looked to have about 10 years on Jones, making him all the way in his 70s, which would have meant that he was in his late 50s when the original incident went down. Considering how he had just taken out seven men with ease, I imagine that he must have been a tough SOB back in the day. I was glad that we were on the same side, and wondered who else would be joining us and if they would be cut from the same cloth. Who's the next squad member that we need to track down? I asked. Tyler, Wilcox answered. He turned to McKinley. You know where we can find him? McKinley laughed and walked over to the bar. Most of the drinkers there had looked up from their beers and bourbons when the fight was going on, before returning to the business of the day by getting drunk. One of them had not moved at all. His forehead was propped against the bar and I realized that he was passed out. McKinley picked the drunk up and carried him over to us. Meet Tyler, he said. A small smile played across Wilcox's face and he announced, that's the squad complete. That's it? I said, but they were already leaving. I sighed. It was tempting to stay in the bar and drink myself into oblivion, but I wasn't ready to abandon all hope just yet. I steeled myself and I headed for the door. The others were strapped into their seats by the time that I climbed on board the helicopter. Tyler must have been helped because he was still dead drunk and out of it. The helicopter rose, leaving Mulhoons in its wake, and it kept rising until the landscape was lost below the clouds. Wilcox announced our ETA at the site of the incident and then returned to his tablet. I was stressed and hungry and tired. I couldn't even remember the last time that I slept, and there was no way that I would be able to sleep in the helicopter. Now with Jones and McKinley snoring in stereo on either side of me, and Tyler mumbling in his stupor, and the way that the helicopter was rattling in the turbulence. I closed my eyes anyway. Please, just a moment's peace, I thought. 
and then I heard someone speak and I opened my eyes. Wilcox was shaking my shoulder and telling me to wake up. What do you know, I had dropped off after all, though I had no idea how long I had been out for. I rubbed my eyes and stretched, and started to shiver. The temperature inside the helicopter had dropped dramatically. I peered out of the window. Through flurries of snow, I could just about make out a vast, white expanse below. It turned out that I had been asleep for hours because we were now flying over a bleak and frozen landscape. It was so different from anything that I had ever known before. Felt like I was looking down on an alien planet. While I was staring in awe, Wilcox was moving through the cabin telling everybody to get kitted up. And Tyler had come around but still looked mighty bleary as he followed his old colleagues towards the back of the cabin. I knew that I should follow them, but I had more pressing matters in mind. Wilcox, seeing that I hadn't moved, snapped at me. You got a problem. Uh, yeah, actually, I replied. I can't do anything until I eat. I'm starving. Wilcox scowled at me as he replied. There are energy bars and fruit concentrates in the backpacks. You'll find them along with the cold weather gear in the storage racks along the way. Now look lively, we're about to disembark. And looking anything but lively, I hurried to the rear of the cabin and pulled on the layer of clothes which I hoped would keep me warm out there in the arctic waste. The helicopter landed and I hurried towards the door. Just before I got there, Wilcox handed me a latest generation satellite phone. And then I stepped out of the helicopter and into fresh air. I cried out and fell with a clump onto the ice, and then lay there wondering why nobody had warned me that the helicopter hadn't landed, but was hovering a few feet above the ground. I groaned and trying to ignore the smirks in the faces of the others, I dragged myself to my feet, only to promptly end up on my backside once more, when I was knocked over by the force of the downdraft from the propeller blades as the helicopter rose into the air. Mentally writing my resignation email from the agency, I stood up and I brushed myself off. The three old squad members were carrying seriously large weaponry, but that did not seem to be slowing them down one bit as they moved away at speed. Wilcox, who brandished a more streamlined weapon, kept pace. Not that I was impressed, grumbling with every step, I followed them. Almost immediately, I began to struggle for breath and after a few minutes, a stitch had spread across my chest. How much further is it? I called out between gasps. Wilcox gave me the bad news. It's a mile to the research base. Once we've discovered the scene, we'll begin the pursuit. I grimaced and stumbled on. And by the time that we reached the base, I was so tired that I thought I was going to hurl. I sank to the ground and sat there gulping in air so cold that it burnt my throat. My eyes were watering, my nose was running, and I could feel the clothes that I was wearing under my cold weather layer clinging to my sweat-soaked skin. I can honestly say that I had never been so miserable in my life. Ahead of me, Wilcox, Jones, McKinley, and Tyler were moving among the wreckage of the research base. When I had first seen the remains on the satellite image back at my desk, 
I had been shocked. But as with any image seen on a screen, it's impossible to distance yourself from it. In this age of extreme information overload, what's one more disturbing sight? Sitting there though, watching the squad make their way carefully through the debris, the tragedy of what had happened here hit home. I looked down, ashamed at feeling sorry for myself and then climbed to my feet and set off after the others. I wanted to see if there was anything that I could do to help. When I caught up to them, they were talking quietly amongst themselves. It's just like back in 88, Jones was saying. Tyler and McKinley nodded in agreement. Wilcox looked at Jones and said, I've read the report filed after you completed the mission. It would help if you could run through the chain of events again. The more detail that I have, the better it will be. Joan's eyes narrowed and I wondered if he was struggling to recall what had happened because the memories had faded with his age. I realized that I couldn't have been more wrong as soon as Jones began to speak. It was September 17th when the call came through. 0800 hours. A military base carrying our covert research had been attacked. There had been a panic transmission which had made this clear and then radio silence. Nobody knew the nature of the attack and the army were gearing up to go in heavy, but that takes time. There were nine of us in the squad then. We were specialists in entering high-risk situations where maintaining secrecy was key. So the agency activated us and we were always going to get there first. When we reached the site of the incident and confirmed that the destruction was widespread, whatever had caused it had hit hard and fast. After confirming that there were no survivors, we began to follow tracks in the ice heading north and northwest from the destroyed base. There had been no fresh snowfall, so it was a clear trail. All the members of the squad had tracked animals, but none of us had seen anything like this before. I don't mind admitting to you now that I was scared. On early maps where the map makers had no information about a particular area, they wrote, here be monsters. And as we followed the tracks, I felt that we were entering unknown territory. That there would be monsters waiting for us. Jones paused and he seemed to be overwhelmed with emotion. It was disconcerting to see such a tough man struggling in this way. He took a deep breath before continuing. As you know from the report, we encountered them five clicks from the base. We engaged with maximum prejudice and prevailed, though we lost two men, good men with young families. After doing a final sweep of the area to check that there were no more of the things alive, we made our way back to the base. The army had arrived by this time. They were busy clearing the site and we left them to it. All we wanted at that stage was to evac the site and mourn our comrades and we thought that was it, that it was job done. Turned out that we couldn't have been more wrong. The dead here are testament to that. Once again, Joan's voice began to break. As hard as he was, his heart was not made of stone. Wilcox had listened without interruption and now said, I've seen the army's report as well. There is no mention of them searching below the foundation level of the wreckage. 
My theory is that the things left a nest underground and now the next generation have hatched. I will order this area to be deep sanitized so that does not happen again. But first, we got ourselves a bug hunt. Let's move out. I had so many questions. One was more urgent than the others. A bug hunt? What do you mean by that? I asked. But they were all already moving away from the wreckage and nobody answered. Just typical, I fought bitterly and jogged after them. The snow had begun to fall, accompanied by a wind which made the flakes swirl. If the weather deteriorated further, I was worried that it would be easy to lose sight of the others if they got too far ahead. As it was, I could see they were following a broken line of marks in the ground. But ahead of us, the snow was already beginning to cover the tracks. Their outlines were still visible, but I wasn't sure how long that would be the case. Fifteen minutes into the pursuit, we lost the tracks. Wilcox turned to me and said, Can you access satellite images on the phone? We need to know where the bugs are. Uh, I think so, I replied. And if you can order pizza while you're at it, Jones added with a grin. As much as I would have loved pizza at that moment in time, I ignored him and got to work, seeing if I could source satellite images of the area. Surprising even myself, I did. The satellite had made a pass 50 minutes ago. I scrolled across the image, seeing only an unbroken expanse of white, and then paused. I had been going too quickly and missed something. I went back and saw a darkness on the ice. I zoomed in and the darkness fractured into sharp specks. It was the bugs in Mustua Ben. They were seven miles away to our south. I showed the image to Wilcox and Jones, who whistled under his breath and then said, There's more of the critters than last time, a lot more. That stacks the odds in their favor. Wilcox did not seem phased. I'm here to exterminate, not to be exterminated, and negativity is not a part of the game plan. Are you on board with that? Joan shrugged, and just wished I had negotiated a bonus based on number of bugs killed. Other than that, I sure am. We got a trek ahead of us, so the sooner we get going, the better. Wilcox smiled to himself. I have a better plan. I have a theory that they respond aggressively to movement. So rather than expanding energy by going to them, let's invite them to come to us. He reached into his backpack and took out a flare gun. He aimed it high into the air and dispatched flare after flare. Explosions of light filled the sky. Wilcox seemed satisfied. Now we wait, he said quietly. The others seemed content to do this. They stood there cradling their weapons and staring into the distance. I couldn't see a trace of fear on their faces. I was not like them and I never would be. I started to shake. It was as if there was an electric current being passed through my body and my entire body shook. I clenched my jaw tight, trying to get control of myself but that made my teeth clatter worse. I was breathing hard as well through my nostrils. The brass frosting in the air in front of me, and I could feel the frantic beat of my heart. But still we waited. 
I scanned the horizon and my imagination ran riot. It felt like we were waiting for the end of the earth, for an apocalyptic incident to tear the sky and land apart. By my side, one of the others, I don't know who, said quietly, There. In a silence broken only by my labored breathing, the single word was very clear and ominous. My heart pounded faster. I squinted into the distance but still couldn't see anything. What is it? What have you seen? Slowly and calmly, Wilcox raised an arm and pointed at the horizon. And finally I saw... Movement. It was a dark shape and it was moving quickly, heading straight for us, and it was not alone. There were six, ten, two dozen. I swore under my breath. More and more of them were coming into view. The empty landscape was now a mass of dark movement. I tore my gaze away from the terror rushing towards us and looked at the others. None of them even had their weapons raised. Blast them, I pleaded, before it's too late. Jones shook his head. They're not close enough, he said, his eyes fixed straight ahead. Not close enough, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. They looked close enough to me. Each bug was as big as a grown man. Each had six sharp long legs. Their thoraxes were thick slabs. Fear transformed these in my mind into armor-plated sections of some terrible machine. Their hideous forms ended in bulging abdomens. As they came closer still, I could see their jagged mandibles and their segmented eyes, which seemed to glisten with malevolent intent. Finally, the others were raising their weapons. Hold, Joan said. Hold. As the nightmare rushed on, a dark tide of grotesque bugs that was about to envelop us. Fire, Jones said. A storm of noise and light broke as the weapons discharged. Instinctively, I moved to cover my ears with my hands and closed my eyes for a moment. When I looked up, the world had become a blur of bugs being cut apart by burst after burst of a scything line of weapon fire. Shards of their casing spiraled away, and thick liquid had sprayed out. I was struck again and again by the remains of dead and dying bugs. A severed mandible sliced open my cheek. I howled in pain and tasted bug blood as it flew into my open mouth. Nausea rushed through me and I staggered forwards, almost colliding with a still whole bug until it was sliced in two. I blinked in the haze and saw Jones grinning as he let loose round after round of destruction into the attacking horde. The bugs were on every side of us. They were racing over the bodies of their fallen kin in their desperation to get at us. The momentum of some carried them over our heads. Others propelled themselves straight at us, each to be met by terminal forests. All I could do was stand there in abject terror. I was in Hades and this torment felt eternal. A bug was hit inches from my face and I was blinded by the explosion of body parts. I fell to my knees, clawing at my face and gagging. I spat out a final burning trail of bile and I looked up. There were bug bodies everywhere but there were no more living ones rushing at us. The others had turned and were holding their weapons steady. They still had their fingers on triggers, but none of them were firing. 
They were watching the bugs that had survived scuttling away. The bugs were running, and I thought with a rush of hope that we had won. I punched the air in triumph. The others, though, looked stern-faced. Wondering why, I scrambled to my feet and saw that the bugs were beginning to loop back on themselves. I realized with horror that they were not fleeing. They were encircling us. In under a minute, we were trapped inside a ring of bugs. What are they doing? I asked. It was Wilcox who replied. Learning. They understand now that a head-on assault won't work, so they're going to try to come at us from all sides. Fear rushed through me at this prospect, and I looked around at the circle of bugs. They were keeping their distance, but they were very animated. One began to clack its mandibles together, an action that the rest soon joined in with to raise a terrible sharp beat. The sound grew louder and louder until I thought that I was going to lose my mind. Why don't they just attack? I cried out. Why don't they just get it over with? The others were looking at each other and I could see from their expressions that none of them had an answer for me. We had no choice but to wait. Or did we? I suddenly remembered the satellite phone. I had dropped it during the attack, but all I needed to do was call for help. The transporter helicopter could rescue us. I began to look around frantically for the phone. I couldn't see it at first and had the awful feeling that it was somewhere under these sickening remains of the bugs. I got back down on my knees and fighting down a new wave of nausea, I began to dig through the chunk-filled slime. And there it was, under a bug's split-open abdomen. Ignoring these slithery organs, I grabbed the phone, wiped its screen partially clean with my sleeve and began to punch at the keys. Nothing I did, though, made the device activate. I swore at it and shook it and was about to start banging it against the ground to see if it would make the cursed thing work when I felt a hand on my shoulder. It was Jones. Leave it, son, he said in a gentle voice. I dropped the satellite phone and began to weep. I was ashamed by my behavior, but I couldn't help myself. After a while, the tears subsided and I wiped my face miserably and looked up. The others had formed their own small defensive circle and were staring defiantly out towards the ring of bugs, which had begun to move. Their first assaults had been carried out at speed, this time though they were inching forward. As they moved towards us, it was like watching a shadow spread across the ground. Slowly, the terrifying darkness crept on. Their mandibles were silent now and the only sound that I could hear was my own ragged breathing. The bugs were 12 feet away and then 10. The others had their weapons raised and shouldered and I could tell that they were about to fire. I couldn't see how they could keep the bugs from overwhelming us though, not when they were going to come at us from every direction. I closed my eyes. I couldn't look and all I could hope was that it would be over quickly. And then I heard a noise. It sounded far away but it was a noise that I recognized. Hope flickered inside me. I looked up and into the sky. The beating of blades was growing louder and I could see a craft in the distance. It was not alone. Three helicopters were speeding towards us. The cavalry was here. As they neared us, they swooped low and began to rake the ground on the outer rim of the circle of bugs. 
the bugs began to scatter in a blind panic. Seeing this, Jones hollered triumphantly. McKinley and Tyler joined in as they patted each other on the back. Wilcox, with a big smile on his face, applauded. The helicopters which had come to our rescue were leaner, meaner crafts than the transporter that had brought us here, and they carried the decals of the army. Our country's army. We were a long way from home and this was like seeing a friendly face. While we whooped and clapped, the bugs continued to scatter in waves. And now that we were out of the line of danger, I steeled myself for the helicopters to begin raining down total destruction and finish the job that we had set out to do. This was no time for mercy. These bugs needed to be wiped from the face of the earth. But I was shocked when their armaments fell silent and nets were thrown out of the helicopter. These were vast, tightly woven sheets of mesh weighted around the edges. As they landed, they covered and caught the bugs, which thrashed wildly to try and break free. But the more they struggled, the more entangled they became. With all the bugs captured, the helicopters descended to the ground. Soldiers piled out of each and ran towards us. As they did, they started to yell at us to get on the ground and pointed their weapons at us. And suddenly, I didn't feel saved. I felt under attack again. Pleading for mercy, I fell to the ground with a cold metal barrel pressed against the back of my head and a soldier screaming in my ear. I had not put up a fight, but I could hear the others protesting. They were demanding to know what was going on and for the soldiers to stop threatening them. It all seemed to no avail. I glanced timidly up and saw a pair of shiny army boots walking away. The rest of the man's uniform was equally razor sharp. The soldiers made way for him and when he spoke, it was with the air of certainty of an officer. The army is taking over this situation now. You will be transported back to a military facility where you will be processed. You don't have the authority, Wilcox broke in. Look around you, son, the officer sneered. You're outnumbered by my men. This is a done deal. As long as you destroy the bugs and sanitize their nest, we'll leave quietly, Wilcox replied. The officer laughed out loud at this. You agency boys really are dumb hicks. The bugs are far too valuable. They're going to be taken back to our research centers and weaponized. This should have happened 35 years ago, but you losers killed all the viable specimens. Now get these dogs out of my sight. This last contemptuous remark was shouted out as an order and I found myself being dragged to my feet, marched to one of the helicopters and manhandled inside. The others were bundled in after me. Marshaled by armed guards, we were forced to huddle together in a circle on the floor of the helicopter as it was powered up and then we were rising into the air no longer as free men. We were prisoners of the state. They're idiots, Jones muttered. If even a single one of the bugs escapes near a built-up area, the consequences don't bear thinking about. Idiots who hold all the cards, Wilcox replied bitterly. And I wish I could say their actions come as a shock to me, but they don't. The agency and the army have had their run-ins before. We all salute the same flag, but that does not always mean we're on the same side. So what are we going to do? Jones demanded. 
Wilcox shook his head sadly. I'll speak to my bosses at the agency as soon as I can, but I don't think it'll make any difference. The army's going to disappear with the captured bugs and deny their existence. My nerves were shot and I was exhausted, and hearing the despair in Wilcox's voice was the final straw. I curled up on the floor of the helicopter and despite the cold and the vibrations rattling right through to the marrow of my bones, I fell into a fitful sleep. When I woke, we were no longer moving. Every fiber of me ached and it took me an age to drag myself to my feet. The guards watched me suspiciously, maybe wondering if I was going to try and pull some kind of trick. There was no chance of that, I was a broken man. As I stepped out of the helicopter, I was handed over to a new set of grim-faced soldiers. They snapped restraints on my wrists and I was pushed towards a waiting jeep. Jones, McKinley, and Tyler were being led into another jeep. Their ankles were in restraints as well and they were forced to shuffle. Unlike me though, they had their heads held high. Wilcox was already in a third jeep and he was not in any restraints that I could see. I guessed he was getting what passed for the VIP treatment because of his status. He was, after all, a bona fide senior agent. The three members of the old squad were yesterday's news, and as for me, well, I was taken back to a dark place to have more manure shoveled on my head. I had used to think that I was trapped in a lousy situation because I had noisy neighbors who kept me awake, and a job that wasn't going anywhere. But that was nothing. I was incarcerated in a windowless room that was four paces wide and ten paces long. There was a steel bed with a narrow mattress and a thin blanket, and a hole in the ground. Twice a day a hatch in the bottom of the door opened and a tray was slid through. Every day it was dried out meatloaf day in custody. I lost track of time insanely quickly but I think I had been locked in that room for around two weeks when the door clicked and it was opened by a man wearing a dark suit. I was so disoriented by this point that I didn't ask him who he was or where he was taking me as he led me down a featureless corridor. Another door was opened for us and we emerged into the night. I wish I could say that things worked out after this. That the army and the agency apologized for the way that I was treated and I was given financial compensation. That I found out that Wilcox and the old squad were at liberty and that the bugs had been destroyed. But none of that happened. I was taken to a car which drove through the night until we arrived in a city that I did not recognize. I was given an envelope containing $200 a new fake identity card and social security number, and told to walk away. That was almost two years ago now. I work in a diner washing dishes and spend any spare cash that I have on cheap booze that burns as it goes down, but leaves me numb for a few hours at least. And as I lie there in the dark in my claustrophobic room, there's only one thing that I know for certain anymore. The true monsters in this world walk on two legs. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.